0: How are you doing there? Just a quickie before we start. On the Apple podcast, why don't you double click on David McWilliams Plus? It's right there when you open the podcast. You get ad-free, you unlock early access. Just double click and away you go. David McWilliams Plus. You get this pure and simple. understand the economy, you have to understand human nature.
1: This podcast is powered by Acast.
0: How are you doing there? It is podcast time. And just before we start, an important announcement. Kilkenomics 2022 from the 3rd to the 6th of November. Tickets are on sale from next Wednesday, September the 14th. But if you are a supporter of us on Patreon, you will get first dibs on September the 13th. Now, these tickets go very, very quickly. Gigs tend to be round. You know the deal. It's stand-up comedy and economics. The stand-ups ask the questions. The economists from all around the world have to be human, communicate in a normal language, and explain the world. Whether it's inflation, house prices, China, Russia, energy prices, financial markets. Is there going to be a crash? Is there not going to be a crash? What sort of economists have a clue what's going on? What sort of economists haven't a rashers? All in the fantastic city of Kilkenny. 40 odd events, three days, one city. See you there. Tickets on sale, 14th of September. Kilkenomics.com. That would be brilliant, Mike. And we are going to do a live podcast. Well, that's going to be even more brilliant. Even more, even (laughs) brillianter. Now I want to discuss, John, the bizarre, perplexing and actually, frankly, quite confusing country that is, if we look out the window, about 70 miles across Across the the Irish Sea. It's called the United Kingdom or maybe the disunited kingdom.
1: You can see it on a clear day.
0: You can see it, in the, unfortunately, <laughs> it is now on its fourth prime minister, John. Yes. In six years, I'm yeah. thinking it's a bit like you know there was a new iPhone today. Yeah. Right? This week, the iPhone 14, apparently, right? Yeah, I thought it was number 64. Well, I something. think that the, the Tories are a bit like iPhones, right? Like every two years, you have to upgrade <laughs> the model, right? And you've got what little app do you, what little app do you want here, and then you add yeah. this little tweak that nobody wants. Right, but it's a new version. It's a new thing. And then you just yeah. increase the price of the thing. Yeah, it's right? just so photo ops. Liz this- Truss, I- she's the iPhone 14 of the Conservative Party. <laughs> and she may, there may well be an upgrade in six months' time. There may well be an upgrade, but it does. And the important thing is that the UK prided itself on stability, strong government. This is what they always talk mm. about. And having four prime ministers in six years... You know, so you go from Cameron to Theresa May to Boris Johnson to Liz Truss. Yeah. The common denominator in all of them is Brexit. Yeah. Okay? Yeah. So Cameron unleashes Brexit. May tries to negotiate Brexit. Johnson is created by Brexit and deploys it to get into power. And Liz Truss now is the iPhone 14 of Brexit. The upgrade is going to be... But what it tells you is that the society, there's something deeply fractured, that Brexit was an explosion that went off at the core of British society.
1: But, but not only that, I mean, all those people that you, you mentioned, they were all a little bit ambiguous about Brexit in itself. You know, Liz Truss started well, as, as it, anti-Brexiteer. She was a Remainer. Boris Johnson famously had his two articles ready to go. Which way was he going to go? Theresa May.
0: May was a Remainer. David yeah. Cameron was a Remainer.
1: Yeah, yeah. No, and he kicked it off the gobshite. Well,
0: you know the interesting, the, the interesting thing about so on the one hand you have this kind of chaotic feel. Then on the other hand, this new cabinet that she's apparently going to unveil is going to be the most diverse cabinet in the UK. It's going to have far more black people in it, far more people of Pakistani and Indian origin, far more women, far more immigrants. It's going to be the most diverse cabinet. And yet, what is amazing? is that the immigrants are the most right-wing. And our assumption always yeah. was that the immigrants would be left-wing because they'd come into society, be a little bit poor. But it's actually sort of panning out that the, a lot of the immigrant votes are people who are going to get up and go, you know, I don't well, need it, the welfare. It, it,
1: immigrants tend to be
0: more ambitious anyway. So what we're having is a real total change in the face of British power Yeah. at a time when the economy has never been weaker. I mean, I was over there... Uh, last weekend, last Saturday, talking at the FT Festivals annual, the FT Weekends annual festival, right? Shindig. Now, in fairness, that is that is the Financial Times. It's only a certain. Was type that the, the fancy one
1: up in the? Oh, the, the, the fancy in, one that we went to. Yes, we spoke at that
0: before. We spoke didn't? at that before, oh, was, and we that was great. And actually. we we remember we sat down and we chatted to Vivian Westwood. That's right. Yes, about we did. The pistols and Malcolm McLaren and all yeah. that sort of stuff. But anyway, I was speaking about that at that last week, and. There is a real sense of trauma in the UK. And anybody I met over the weekend, the chats were, a lot of it was politics. Mm. And there was a real sense that, which you don't get here, right?
2: Yeah. That,
0: that they are on a path that none of them can really figure out where the end game is. The society, I mean, the inequalities in the UK, I mean, there's inequalities everywhere. The data will tell you Irish inequality is half as bad as the UK. But the reality of that is this extraordinary sense of the haves and have-nots. Yeah. You can really feel it there. And now what we have is they're going into, like the rest of Europe, a norm of weak exchange rates, incredibly high levels of inflation. And the problem with the UK is that inflation in the UK comes from two sources. One is energy, and one is the exchange rate. And every time the exchange rate goes lower, the price of imported goods goes higher, and you get higher inflation. You have a Bank of England that is miles behind the curve because they don't want to raise real interest what, rates. What,
1: what is with the Bank of England?
0: There's a fella called Bailey runs the Bank of England now. Really inconsequential lad. Shouldn't be let out in his own on telly. You yeah. know, he, no, he really he shouldn't. Like, he should have a minder. This guy took over from Carney. This guy took over from so Carney is Canadian Jesuit educated former yeah. Goldman Sachs, as swanky as BJ's as sharp suits. You know, silver-tongued, all that sort of thing. Yeah. Plays the game really well, right? Okay, whether you like it or not. Former Bank of Canada governor, then Bank of England governor, very much an insider in the Mario Draghi. Yes, yeah. You know, He seemed to be pretty effective. Very effective, but I mean, the critics would say it's all style and substance and actual fact he he was governing at a time when inflation was low. That inflation gave them the sense that they were in control, et cetera. Yeah. This new fella now just seems to be at least when he speaks in public, doesn't seem to have a very good economic brain, which is a little bit worrying. Right. Although our lad now, Loof, yeah, nobody knows what type of brain he has, because you've never heard him speak. Yeah, well, he's never here. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so he's still in Greece with his man in <laughs> the COVID. That's right. Right. But when we come to talk about the UK, what I want to talk about now is obviously they have a new prime minister. Mm. I want to talk to Douglas Alexander. I met him over the weekend, old mate of mine, right? He was on uh, the podcast there
1: a few months ago. He's brilliant. Yeah.
0: This man has been the Scottish Secretary, Transport Secretary, Transport Secretary, the International Development Secretary in the cabinet under Blair when he was young, when he was in his thirties, and he was in the cabinet under Brown. The only person to be in both of those Labour cabinets. Right. Okay. You know he is. He knows his onions. A huge, what a huge experience! Huge experience. In government, he knows what it's like. Yeah, uh, all around Good Egg. Unfortunately, a Rangers fan, so he's not feeling great this <laughs> this morning and this week. So let's go to Scotland. Let's go to Glasgow and talk to Douglas Alexander. Douglas Alexander, how are you? Good to see you. Very well, thank you. On this historic week. Well, I was just going to. I was going to before we start. We have to just have a quick a quick genuflection to the old firm last Saturday. I'd not,
3: if that's okay. What, what what's happened to Jers? Well, the truth is, let's start with the good side. For the first time in more than a decade, you've got two Scottish teams in the Champions League. So Britain may have left (laughs) left Europe, but Scottish football seems to be joining Europe. Um, But it was the first old firm clash at Parkhead uh, this weekend and Rangers got truly hammered. They got taken apart by Celtic. And under uh, Postacoglu, the Australian manager of Celtic, they're pretty rampant domestically at the moment. Start of the season and they're five points up. So you just got a long, long winter ahead. The Ibrox community is a long winter ahead. Well, honestly, the Ibrox community is looking forward to European football. So for the first yeah. time in more than a decade, uh, Rangers have qualified for the Champions League group stages. So, Yeah, no, it's a it's, big deal. It's a really big yeah, deal. Whether it's Ajax, whether it's Napoli, whether it's Liverpool coming to Ibrooks there's some consolation for Rangers fans, even after a pretty grim weekend. Okay, well, like, let, let's leave the football.
0: And, uh, but I was we were also, we, we, were, we were chatting, just so so the you know, listeners know, Douglas and I were chatting in London last weekend. We were also lamenting the shambolic end of the Linfield campaign in Europe when they were, in the last minute of extra time, they had a four-on-one overlap and they thought they did one, and then Linfield went out. Anyway, enough of Rangers and Linfield, because that'll inflame, inflame some of our, our listeners that were even talking about those grads. Including Doug, myself. Including, <laughs> including John, exactly. <laughs> including John. Okay, let us talk. Douglas, I got the palpable sense. Obviously, it's a historic week, but I just want to do more of a state-of-the-nation discussion with you. Each time I've been over in the UK in the last while, which hasn't been enough in fairness, but there is a palpable sense of a country unmoored not unhinged but unmoored yep. from the anchors of stability that characterize normal economies societies etc political infrastructures give me a sense of where you think the uk is what sort of intray does liz truss have and what might she do and
3: what could be done someone said at the weekend the only thing that's missing from liz truss's intray is armageddon You know, it is a brutally horrible entry. And that's really because both the politics and the economics of the UK has been unmoored in recent years. I mean, let's remember, Boris Johnson was desperate to be Prime Minister, but in 2010, Gordon Brown lost office to David Cameron. We had a coalition for the first time for five years in many decades. But since then, we've had a rapid succession of changes. David Cameron goes after the Brexit referendum, then Theresa May, then Boris Johnson... And now, of course, Liz Trust. And I think there's been a really big shift in British politics in the last decade, which is, if you like, the central currency of elections not being economics, but being identity. The big questions in British life over the last few years have been, who are we? Are we Scottish? Are we British? Are we British? Are we European? And I think it'll be really interesting this winter because my sense is economics is going to come roaring back centre stage because of just the deep fear that people have in terms of the cost of living. So politics has shifted significantly over recent years, but also that is underpinned by a really bad combination of low growth and high inequality. And if you like, that combination explains the disaster that was austerity at the early part of the decade, the struggle to find economic growth over the last two or three years, and the really chronic state of a lot of public services right now in the UK. So the UK is, is listing; The ship of state is listing as List trust takes the bridge.
0: And let's just focus on the economics, I was going to call this podcast, I was just pottering around this morning, when the IMF bailout happens in the UK. And the reason I'm saying this is not actually to be inflammatory, but there is a constellation of events that could occur which could put the UK economically, if Liz Truss does the high-spending, low-tax combo that she's going to go for, high, high borrowing when the currency is already very, very fragile, the rate of inflation is predicted on some predictors to be as high as maybe 18% next year, where the Bank of England is well behind everything simply because it can't raise real interest rates to 18% because the economy would crater, particularly an economy that has been sustained not unlike our own economy, many Western European economies, not unique to the UK by huge levels of personal and corporate debt. So you've got all these various different uh, factors going on. Give me your sense of the economics of the next couple of months. As you say, economics will come roaring back.
3: Well, making a sense of economics, I think you actually have to start with the politics. Liz Truss has been chosen by significantly less than 1% of the UK population. About 170,000 Tory members They are overwhelmingly white, overwhelmingly old, overwhelmingly in the southeast of England. And if you like, why she managed to best Rishi Sunak in this contest is because she understood better than he did that conservatism's ruling orthodoxy has become cakeism, the belief that you don't need to make difficult choices, whether on borrowing or on taxes or in economics more generally. She is, if you like, offering boosterism without Boris to the Conservative Party, saying it's all going to be fine. Now, the reality is the economic conditions she inherits are anything but fine. And that's why this week we will see an unprecedentedly large economic package announced by Liz Trust it, in terms of scale comparable to what we saw with the furlough scheme in the teeth of the pandemic. And that's because contrary to all of her own beliefs about the size of the state and how to run an economy, if she blunders in her first week and doesn't address the deep fears on the cost of living and on energy prices in particular, she basically is done before she's begun. And the Conservative Party understand that, and they have a hunger and an instinct for power. So I think the way to think about the next few months, and actually the next couple of years, because she's indicated she's looking at going long with a general election probably in the spring of 2024, although she can actually go through until January 2025, is that, if you like, there will be a big hinge. First of all, she will spend what money she needs to try and retain political viability, while promising the membership who have just elected her a more orthodox Thatcherite approach after the next election. So I expect the energy package she'll announce will probably extend to the two years, conveniently that window between now and the next general election, and try and persuade people that problems in terms of their energy bills have gone away. But the truth is, if you fill your car with petrol, if you are buying food in the shops, inflation is a lot more than just energy prices, and people are really going to be feeling the squeeze in the UK this winter. I think there is a palpable sense of fear in communities across the UK that the government really hasn't got this, and we've got an economic model that isn't working.
0: Now I'm going to I'm going to cuz you you said something there about the Tories and I've been fascinated that this 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 instinct for power that they have. And I think people of our generation because Tony Blair was in power and you were in the cabinets there and yep. uh, Gordon Brown was in power for a long chunk like three uh, electoral cycles we've kind of convinced ourselves well you know it's a it's, it's a two-party state but actually historically if you look at it it's a kind of a one and a half party state in the sense the Tories have been in power a lot Okay? And I want you to explain to me, maybe in a little, little bit, what is this Tory nation? Why does this party continue to galvanize majorities on a constant basis, despite scandals and economic crises and bad decisions and all that? Sort of stuff? But let me, let's, let's focus now on something that the UK in the 1970s had an IMF bailout, which is kind of inconceivable given where the UK had started, let's say, 30 years prior to that. Strongest currency in the world, biggest current account surplus in the world, all that good stuff. Just, again, bad management, bad luck, and an energy crisis. So, this is what I'm talking about. The, these energy crises can really unhinge politics in a way in which we haven't seen for 40 or 50 years. I think that's absolutely right. Firstly,
3: the Tory party, um, one of their talents is shape shifting, that they change with a shamelessness that would make most political parties blush. So the way I think about the modern Conservative Party is it's not really a Conservative Party at all. It is an English nationalist party. And if you like, it has been remade in the image of the Brexit vote that it was central in delivering. And in that sense, that's radically different from the one-nation conservatism that you would have seen with someone like John Major, the big beast like Ken Clarke, or others who you would know, all of whom basically have been squeezed out by what is a much more right-wing Conservative Party than was the case in the past. But politics is comparative, and as someone who's been a Labour Party member for more than 30 years, we have to take our share of responsibility for the fact that the Conservatives keep winning elections. You know, if you look at the record of the Labour governments and indeed Labour general elections, it was defeat, 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 defeat. Blair, Blair, Blair. Defeat, 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 defeat. That tells you something. And if you talk to Tony Blair, as I've done about it, one of the points he makes is we are a party that is too borne down and weighed down by our past. As a party, we're sentimental and attached to ideas about um, the working class, ideas about trade union organisation, ideas about manufacturing in what is a modern service economy. And if you are perceived as being more interested in the past than the future, you tend to lose. Honestly, if you elect Jeremy Corbyn as your leader twice in five years, then it's going to take time for the British people to give you back the trust that they want in terms of the leadership. So I think there's a comparative element as well. In terms of the economics, though, I think we are rightfully proud of the work that we did in the late to mid-90s and indeed uh, through into the early noughties when we lifted the UK's level of economic growth to levels where we were actually catching up with the France's, the Germany's, we now flatter ourselves by saying we're the fifth largest economy in the world, although indeed numbers were published yesterday saying India's overtaken us and the UK's fallen to sixth. But that size of the UK economy masks the fact that we're much more unequal than most of these European alternatives. And that's why there are many, many poorer people who are really struggling. And again, that's where austerity played a big role. One of the features of austerity over the last 10 years was to absolutely hammer the benefits paid not to those out of work, but also to those in work. So we have a real problem with poverty, pay and inequality, the profundity of the inequality in the UK that is not replicated in continental European countries. And the challenge is how do we raise British productivity? How do we focus on growth? And how do we make sure that the proceeds of growth are shared more equitably than we've seen over the last decade or so? See, it's
0: amazing that you, you're, you're talking like this. And we 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 exchanged a chat on Saturday night about a, a trip I had to a place called Sketchfield. I think it was Ske- uh, in mm-hmm. Birmingham. I think it's called Sketchfield. Yep, or Sketchfield. Yep, uh, and it was a football trip about five years ago with my son and his football team. And we I could even sense the kids, the Irish kids, were really quite shocked at the poverty they sensed around them in a suburb of Birmingham. Mm-hmm. Just the. The physical look of the people, the physical sense of the place, the complete lack of of, of any resources. And again, that's Irish kids comparing Ireland and we're catching up, right? If you compare your average Parisian or or, or certainly German kid, it's a totally different social infrastructure that they're inheriting from their parents who are also framing it to their politicians. And yet, Liz Truss is still talking about trickle-down economics.
3: Well, frankly, you're right. Uh, When I was the MP in Paisley, I had to help establish a local food bank. And food banks have now extended the length and breadth of the United Kingdom. That's despite the fact, even in Scotland, we get about £2,000 more in terms of public expenditure per head of population than in England, thanks to the Barnett formula. But the reality is, those food banks, on one hand, reflect the best of human instinct, a desire to help each other and to help your neighbours, but they represent a profound failure of an economic and social model where people are relying on charity rather than being valued as members of society. Now, in that sense, whether that is by raising the minimum wage, whether that is by making sure that in-work benefits like tax credits are paid, Britain has really declined over the last decade and faces profound social justice challenges as well as profound economic uh, challenges and economic productivity challenges.
0: Now, I know that you're not a big fan of Scottish nationalism, but if you are a Scottish nationalist and you're listening to this programme, you're listening to your talking and and, and you're saying, look, the UK has this problem, that problem, the other problem, been run by an an English nationalist party that believes in trickle-down economics, but they'll spend quite a bit if they can get away with it, and then they'll try and limp to the next election, and then they'll obviously impose austerity because they've got to get back to the fiscal idea that the Tories have some sort of fiscal responsibility somewhere in the back of their heads, okay? And you're, an, uh, you're a Scotsman or a Scotswoman. You think, do I want to be part of that?
3: Well, two parts of that. First of all, I don't believe the Tories um, are going to win the next election. I think genuinely, Keir Stammer is doing a good job and there is every prospect that Labour can win. It's far from in the okay. bag. but okay, fair um, That's a genuine option in a way that, frankly, a couple of years ago would have been almost unimaginable. People thought maybe he can be Neil Kinnock, but he can't be Neil Kinnock and John Smith and Tony Blair in one term. <clears throat> Most commentators now think... Certainly, we need to take that seriously. So, first of all, that's a realistic okay, possibility. Fair enough. And if you like, there's a symbiotic relationship between the Tories and the Scottish nationalists, English nationalists, Scottish nationalists. And if you like, they've got a huge vested interest in both squeezing Labour out of the story. But the reality is, we've just got a real time experiment of what a politics of flags, grievance, and new borders do. And it's called Brexit. And for me, it is a warning to be heeded not a model to be replicated. Because the fact is, we sell way more from Scotland to the rest of the United Kingdom than we do to the rest of the European Union. Why would we want to replicate all of the problems that we're living with at the moment in terms of the Northern Ireland Protocol, the collapse of um, competitiveness for the UK, the problems at Dover? It just doesn't make sense if you're saying, how do we drive economic productivity and growth? And incidentally, I think that point of view has informed the fact that despite really terrible Conservative governments in recent years, support for independence hasn't spiked above 50%. We're kind of a 50-50 nation in Scotland, 50% supporting independence, 50% not supporting independence. But if you had to design in a petri dish a politician likely to spike support for independence, it would have been Boris Johnson. And if you had to kind of grow a policy that would give a kind of wrapper of internationalism to nationalism it would be brexit and despite brexit despite boris johnson scots with a quiet determination have said frankly we don't believe that this is a magic door that you need to walk through and it solves every problem so my view would be goodness knows the united kingdom's got a huge range of problems but the nationalists just haven't come up with answers and our good friend mark Blythe has realized that recently when looking for information on the Scottish government website and getting a lot of publicity in scotland hard work of making the case for the economics of independence simply hasn't been done since the last time we voted in 2014.
0: Let's slip over. We started talking about Celtic and Rangers, which is always a funny place to start. Not a great place to end conversations, I always think. It was a funny place to start, but Northern Ireland. Okay, You've been in two UK cabinets. You were in UK cabinets when the relationships between Ireland and the UK were probably at their best, the end of the Blair years. There was an extraordinary sense that we were all on the same page, the Belfast Agreement was working, there was a real sense that Northern Ireland was successfully coming out of the troubles, etc. cetera, right? Now the relationships between, at least politically, between Dublin and London have never been worse. I mean, any insider here will tell you that, that the the Irish civil servants are despairing at the chaotic response, the lack of certitude, the lack of stability. And we know on the ground, in Northern Ireland things of, you know, they're they're sclerotic. You have a government that should be run by Sinn Féin. You should have Michelle O'Neill as first minister. She's not. Where do you think Northern Ireland's going? And how do you think Liz Truss will affect that?
3: Well, I suppose my experience as um, part of the government and, and working with my colleagues in terms of Northern Ireland is, first of all, a deep admiration for the work that was done in Northern Ireland at that time, both by the people and by the politicians, but an overwhelming sense that that piece is hard won and is fragile. And I have had my head in my hands in recent years, watching the um, casual disdain, casual incompetence, and frankly, casual vandalism of the Brexiteers when it comes to the peace in Northern Ireland. But at the same time, I simply don't understand why the DUP supported Brexit if they were interested in a long-term future for Northern Ireland within the United Kingdom. Snap. If you like, my lesson from the late 90s and early noughties was that the guy who got there first was John Hume. He understood that Europe could change the geometry of the conversation from a zero-sum game that said, we win and you lose, or vice versa, to the two communities, and he basically, and this was what underpinned the Good Friday Agreement, understood that we wanted people to be able to make that choice themselves. If you wanted to self-identify as an Irish citizen, you could do so. If you wanted to self-identify as British, you could do so. There would be an invisible border. And if you like, there would be a structured ambiguity that could hold that community together and let it prosper. And that's really what we've seen for 20 years. But that requires political leadership. It requires political leadership in Northern Ireland, And I look in vain for where that leadership is on the unionist side and at the same time it needs political leadership in Dublin and in London and I think we've still got it in Dublin but we're looking in vain for it in London so I hope both during Michael Martin's tenure and then when Leo Varadkar takes back over we will see a significant improvement in Anglo-Irish relationships but there is very little evidence that that's on Liz Truss's agenda and I worry that she sees Brexit as a front in the culture war and Northern Ireland as part of that, rather than being an issue that needs to be handled with sensitivity, with skill, and hopefully with statesmanship. Douglas, I just wanted to ask you about, I know
1: Liz Truss is not the most diplomatic of people, it seems, but I'm just curious about, with some of her comments about Macron and all the rest, how is the European relationship going to go, do you think? How's it going to change, if at all?
3: Well, listen, we will find out. I hope that those spectacularly ill-judged comments about Emmanuel Macron um, were campaign talk rather than governing talk. The idea that you don't immediately recognise France, who, incidentally, as the UK, we're in a military alliance with (laughs) as being one of our partners um, and said the jury's out, is just, it's bad politics, it's bad diplomacy, and it's stupid statecraft. So the fact is, she's got a chance to reset that relationship. I understand the British Prime Minister is going to be invited to the European Council in October. That's going to focus on Ukraine. It's going to focus on geopolitics. I really hope that she goes. How she shows up is going to be critical to that relationship. And as I say, I've had my head in my hands. I'm a former Europe minister and dealt a lot with European leaders when I was in government. I've had my head in my hands in the kind of self-harming way that Boris Johnson and Liz Truss have conducted themselves on the international stage in recent months and years. Let's hope that that changes when she gets to Downing Street. But honestly, I don't have much hope, John. Right. (laughs) And that incredibly uplifting. Well, I hope she
0: fills her suitcase with cheese. Yeah, She's yeah. obsessed with cheese. This, I think, this, the title <laughs> it's a, of this podcast—it's a podcast. scandal, John. It's a <laughs> scandal. The title—that yes. it's a disgrace—is another great word. The, it's the, a disgrace. It's a disgrace. The title of this podcast will be Listros, <laughs> Friend or Foe?" End of story. <laughs> Douglas, listen, great to talk to you, and we'll talk. We'll chat okay. to you soon. Thanks Cheers, very much. Douglas. Bye.
1: I love the way Douglas described the Tory Party as shapeshifters. Yeah, which, by the way, Liz Truss just fits in there perfectly because she's the ultimate shapeshifter, going from a Lib Dem to Tories to Remainer to Brexit. You know, she's
0: well, I, do anything I, she's, for her. She's doing, well, I mean, the, the extraordinary thing about the Tories, John, is that Britain is a Tory nation, right? Yeah. They have been in power. I'm not sure of the actual figures, but I think it's about 70% of the time, maybe even higher than that, since the Second World War, right? We tend to think that Labour are an alternative, but it's only never now and then. I think Douglas, I think he was going to defeat, 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 Blair, Blair, yeah, Blair. Yeah, yeah. Defeat, 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 right? Yeah. So then you see, okay, so the Tories are to English politics what Fianna Fáil used to be to Irish politics. Right. <laughs> Fianna Fáil used to be able to be a thing of all, the jack of all trades. Remember they used to be like, yeah. Charlie he would be, I'd be spending loads of money. No, no, I'd be fiscally conservative. I'd yeah, be a yeah. radical nationalist. We need to tighten our belts. We need to tighten our belts, right? <laughs> but the, Fianna Fáil managed to be voted in by the richest people in society, the builders and all those things years yeah. ago, right? And yet represented the poorest people. And they tended to, you know, because they do the whole thing, they be got the, the GAA matches, they would be at the funerals. Yeah. But the whole other thing, they'd be like, you know, they'd, they'd have the one hand on the 1916 Rising, right? and the other hand, they'd be on the Good Friday Agreement. Yeah. Like, they were everything, to all of it. And they, they've lost that power. They've lost that knack. Yeah. And they've really lost. Now, the Tories have exactly that sense. Now, what is really interesting about this bunch of Tories, if you think about the Conservative Party, The key is in the name is to conserve, Mm. right? Mm. And this is an Edmund Burke, an Irish Tory man who wrote, if you're actually interested in this thing, Edmund Burke's Reflections on the French Revolution. I think it was published in about 1795. is still worth reading in terms of understanding the difference between. So the Tory party is about conserving. So conservatism is all about legacy and tradition, and not being too radical, right? So you inherit, their idea was things that are passed down, passed down because they work. And the idea of disrupting all that is actually a radical change in society and too radical. So mm. the best thing is incremental gradualism, et cetera, Right? That was the Tory party, right? Under Liz Trust and under Johnson, it has become the disruptive party not the Conservative Party. Yeah. So conservatism is about stability, it's about long-term, it's about we know the people, we are what we are. It's a sense of permanence. Yeah. What Johnson and Truss are doing is something quite radical. It's a radical departure from this. It's actually the disruptive party. And it comes from, you know, that Silicon Valley, you know, move quickly and break things. Yeah, you yeah, know, yeah. Exactly the thing you should not do to run a society. Yeah. Okay? And but again, do, do the times that we're living in not require well, a bit of... Difference. This disruption, they probably do, they probably do, but also you can argue the opposite. The times we're living in are so destabilizing in and of right, themselves. You need a stability, you need steady eddies in the yeah, middle. Yeah.
1: Calm down, everyone. Yeah, yeah
0: exactly. That <laughs> we are obviously in danger of being uh, vilified as centrist dads here. Yes. So we're saying you need a center, <laughs> just be nice, You know, take everybody into the big tent, you know, all that sort of thing. We're all in this one thing together, but so ironically. The radicalism that used to be the mantle of the Labour Party, which is we are going to change society through legislation, through ideas, mm. we are going to govern through the notion of nirvana, and we are going to disrupt things in order to get there, has actually been taken by the Tories. Yeah. But the Tories still have this ability, as you said, to go with the flow. Mm. Because ultimately, they've no ideology. And when you've no ideology, it's very easy to shift around.
1: But here's here's the other thing that I was thinking about recently as well, is that I saw actually a really good doco the other day on 1981. The chaos of the year 1981. <laughs> what age was I? 13, 14? Yeah. And and looking back, and it just brought back a whole load of memories. Thatcher was was in government a couple of years. Now Liz Truss is kind of
0: She's modelled on Thatcher. She's modelling herself. She's like an Instagram version of it. Absolutely. If, there was, if there was an Instagram it's Thatcher. That's who she is.
1: Yeah, unemployment is huge. All that kind of a lot of racial stuff going on. But Britain just exploded. And at the moment, if you look at Britain, we talked about poverty with Douglas. There, mm-hmm. we talked about the cost of living crisis, the energy crisis. All are these are all. Just Tinder for the spark. Yeah. I mean, do you reckon that Britain could explode over the winter?
0: Well, what I reckon is usually countries don't explode in the winter. It's yeah, that's cold. true. It's true. That yeah. is it's true. You could explode yeah, in the yeah, summer. Yeah. Okay. That is Summertime true. time <laughs> is when we go rioting. Okay. Winter time <laughs> is when we watch Netflix. Okay. Right.
1: Yeah, but they won't pay to watch Netflix. We know. No, I electricity. think I think
0: that, and we'll, we'll do a podcast on it next week. The coming energy crisis. Inflation, energy cost of living crisis. There's a movement on the left in the UK called enough is enough, mm. which the left row is very good. Slogans, have you noticed that? Yeah. They're they're now starting the get Brexit done sort of thing. Yeah. How, yeah enough yeah, yeah. is enough. Yeah. So they're they're borrowing the three, the three-word thing, yeah. drain the swamp. Enough is enough. But <laughs> lock I, her up. Lock her up, exactly. <laughs> lock me up. <laughs> but I think that nothing so destabilizes a country as very high levels of inflation, right? So, for example, Lenin once said, Vlad, always a man to quote, mm-hmm. <laughs> nothing so undermines society as a debauched currency. And by that he meant that once your currency, or money becomes worthless, once you're not really sure how much your money is worth, a whole load of other anxieties come to the fore. Yeah. And you can really destroy the society. Now that brings us to maybe finally the piece on economics. So what the Brits are trying to do, is they're trying to do? We're going to, from, from from Lenin to Saint Augustine, John. Good Saint, man, good man. right. Augustinian was idea was make me virtuous, but just not yet, oh Lord. Yes, right. Which is basically all of us, okay? I want to give up this, but not tonight. Maybe yeah. tomorrow. Yeah, okay? yeah, yeah, Monday. So Turn's what? Monday. Yeah. So what Liz Truss is going to do is take the very Augustinian view, right? Which is they're going to try and spend as much money as possible now, which means they're going to issue huge amounts of gilts into the market. That means the British long-term interest rates, by definition, are going to rise okay. and rise quite, quite rapidly. It also means the currency is going to fall, right? right? And what she's trying to gamble is that that combination will allow her to have a huge war chest, which she will then use to subsidize energy prices and bring down the cost of energy increases to the average person in the next couple of weeks. And right. we're going to do the same thing, by the way. Right. All of Europe is going to do the same thing. We're probably, hopefully, going to use for clever uh, the windfall surplus and corporation tax to do that.
1: Oh, we got another four billion yeah, or something so you, you, there you, recently.
0: Yeah. So you do you you spend that on on, on capping price yeah. increases. So basically, what what happens is you've got an energy crisis, which means there's a massive transfer of wealth from the producers of energy, mm. Russia, Saudi Arabia, et cetera, et cetera, to the consumers of energy. Yeah. Right. Now, the way in which you protect the consumers of energy is the state comes in and caps the prices. But somebody has to pay those producers. So there has to be a transfer of resources to the producers of energy in order for us to get it. And I think it's a very clever way of spending your tax windfall. And the reason it is, is that if we allow inflation to become embedded in the system, Remember we talked inflationary expectations where everybody's wage increases go up and everybody feels like I want 10% next year, 20% the year
2: after.
0: Then you have this wage price spiral, which is much more debilitating to a country than simply using a bit of a windfall tax gain to prevent that. So prevention is always better than cure. Mm. So to prevent that, we've got to go in like this. We can do it from a tax windfall. The Brits don't have that tax windfall. So what they're going to do is borrow for that, right? Right. And then- In order for her to go back to the home counties and the shires in 12 months' time or 18 months' time and say, I'm still a conservative, even though I'm spending like Juan Perón, the actual (laughs) former Argentinian man, okay? She'd have to say, we are now going to stop spending after you vote us in. So we're going to actually bring forward austerity, we're going to cut your taxes, and we're going to go back to the red trouser brigade, Toryism, right? right? That's the politics of it. Yeah. The economics and the finance of it are, will the financial markets allow them? Will the bond markets allow them? Yeah. Will the currency markets allow them? I mean, James Carville, the raging Cajun, right? Yeah, yeah. Who was uh, Bill Clinton's chief of staff yeah. and, uh, and a most extraordinarily incisive man. He's still around, actually. He's still doing around. You see him on American TV every now and then. He was saying in 1997, 1996, when Clinton was hemmed in by the bond market, he said, if I come back in the new world and the next life, I want to come back as the bond market. And what he meant by that is the bond market at the time of crisis becomes so strong. Yeah. And I think there is a very significant likelihood of a bond crisis in the UK this winter, that the financial markets would just say, these figures don't add up. Your budget deficit figures are too high. Your tax base is too low. Your ability to borrow is limited by the fact that your real interest rates will be so high. You'll have to pay us so much. Why will you have to pay us so much? Because your currency is so weak that we have to be compensated as foreigners for holding because the UK borrows in the foreign market a lot. So that's why I think, so I took back to your 1981 question. I think it's more like the late 70s than the 80s, but you might have the same type of evolution. So in the late 70s, you get an energy crisis, you get a government that isn't popular, you get lots and lots of industrial relations crisis, you get the three-day week, all that sort of yeah. stuff, right? And you get a bond crisis because money flies out the door, right? Already, Brexit has made international capital jittery about the UK. Yeah. You superimpose this on it, and I think there's a real likelihood that the UK ends up in a bond cul-de-sac in the next 18 months something they haven't experienced for 50 years. So if that happens, what are the, what are the implications for us then
1: here in Ireland? Well,
0: it's a, that's a, it's fascinating. If we had been sitting here 25 years ago, good chance we'd be here 25 years, hence two, <laughs> well, old, I'm not so sure, two old elegance thing <laughs> on Zimmer frames. <laughs> but when Ireland and the UK were so profoundly intertwined financially, but don't forget that Ireland had a currency crisis because the UK in September of 1992, fell out of the European exchange rate mechanism. Back yes, then, we were regarded well. as basically a Britain light. Yeah. That has completely changed Ireland. has totally divorced itself from the UK financially, like 100% financially. Mm. And I mean, we've, we've, we've given the figures before, export-wise, 1951, when Winston Churchill was in his last second term of office uh, 93% of our exports went to the UK. It's now 11%. So we've completely divorced ourselves on that side as well. Yeah. So I think that's bizarre to say, but the more crises there are in the UK, the more jittery the UK capital markets, the more unstable it is as a place of long-term investment or perceptions of long-term investment, the more capital will look for other places to go. And as I always said, you know, when your neighbor goes bonkers, all you got to do is do nothing and you look really sane. Yeah. <laughs> and that's precisely what's going to happen here. And a crisis in the UK, which in the old days used to drag us down, yeah, financial crisis in the UK will be another windfall for us. Just a quick update on Patreon. If you want to go to Kilkenomics, the best economics festival in the world, November 3rd to 6th in Kilkenny. You, as a Patreon member, will get first dibs on these tickets, and they go extremely quickly. So Patreon, first dibs, Kilkenomics tickets, no ads, early access, access to all economic courses, and, of course, access to the conversation. For myself and John, answer your questions every single week. So, patreon.com forward slash Dave DaveMcWilliams. Sign up, all for the price of a pint.